I just wanted to give a short intro to this episode before it gets started because it's slightly different than a normal unsupervised thinking episode. So this episode is a joint one between us and the Always Already podcast, so it's going to be posted in both of our feeds. The Always Already podcast is a critical theory podcast, which if you're not familiar, critical theory is a branch of philosophy that deals with analyzing and critiquing different aspects of culture and literature to kind of get at the forces that shape those things in a way that may not be obvious. Um, So it's a bit of an interesting podcast for us to do. It was Connor's idea to do it because he listens to Always Already, and so in the episode he explains his motivations for wanting to do this joint podcast. We read for this episode a book called Brainstorm by Rebecca Jordan Young. Uh, Rebecca Jordan Young, she has a PhD in sociomedicine, I think is the term, and so she's kind of in between pure scientist and this meta critique of science that comes out of philosophy and the humanities, uh, especially a field called science and technology studies. So this book is is meant to be somewhere in between us, unsupervised thinking, and always already. And it covers a lot of specific detail about certain scientific experiments related to how hormones in the womb can affect gendered behavior of a person later in life. And so in the book, she goes into quite extensive detail about certain studies and the flaws in those studies that perhaps make this theory that uh, prenatal hormones impact gendered behavior later in life. It's meant to uh, weaken that theory and make it clear that the evidence isn't as strong as perhaps some people think. To be honest, we don't talk too extensively about the science in this episode, and so uh, we may very well have just a regular unsupervised thinking episode about gender and biology or sex differences in the brain at some point. But this episode actually, interestingly, focuses more on meta-issues of science and how it relates to society, uh, and it's based in, in this book that we all read because obviously gender issues and the study of gender can have a lot of impacts on society. So I think it leads to an interesting conversation about those more meta issues. Um, Just a technical note, this episode is a little bit longer than usual because there were six of us all talking, and so it's about an hour and a half, and it was recorded via Skype, so apologies in advance for um, occasional suboptimal sound quality, but I think it's all still totally fine. So on to the episode. Hello and welcome to a very special joint episode of the Always Already podcast and Unsupervised Thinking. Uh, For the Always Already audience, Unsupervised Thinking is a podcast that's run by a group of computational neuroscientists. We focus on neuroscience and artificial intelligence and other aspects of science more broadly. I'm Grace. My co-hosts are... Josh. Connor. And hello, Unsupervised Thinking folks. Uh, My name is John McMahon, one of the co-hosts of the Always Already podcast, which is a critical theory podcast that spends part of our time talking about texts new and old in critical theory, and the other part of our time doing interviews with scholars, activists, artists, practitioners who are in some ways putting critical theory into practice. And uh, two of my co-hosts on the podcast are here with us today. Emily. Hi. (laughs) Oh, wait, we did at the same time. Darn. We're really bad at this. I'm Emily. 
Hi, and I'm James. <laughs> All right, so Grace, maybe you can kind of set up a little bit about the overlap between us and kind of what we're all going to be thinking about going forward. Yeah, so for this, uh, we all read this book called Brainstorm by Rebecca Jordan Young, and it's a book that tackles issues related to biology and gender and the interplay between them, and I assume we'll get into more of the details about uh, that interplay, but I kind of wanted to put Connor on the spot because he set up this joint podcast and to have him explain his motivations for this, which may seem like an unconventional pairing. Oh, Great. Um, yeah, I so I like to read philosophy, I guess, um, as do many people. Um, <laughs> and I guess I have a feeling often doing science that there's a sort of I mean, maybe this is totally ungrounded, but it's kind of the way I think about that, you know, and this is a very unoriginal thought, actually, but that fields are like divided up kind of too much and I find myself, which is a common complaint of PhD students, hyper-focusing on certain things and I just thought it would be cool to try to because I like the pod, the Always Already podcast quite a lot, um, it would be cool to reach out and find something that we could talk about that where we just kind of actively, you know, in our own tiny way, bridge some kind of gap. That was that was basically my thinking. This book works really well for that and you know, it turns out we've talked about a lot in our uh, conversation leading up to this that actually those gaps in are very much a subject of the book, if uh, not, you know, core to its aims. Yeah, which maybe right. raises kind of an interesting question we might start with, and that is thinking how kind of all of us from our various perspectives and kind of investments in different sort of academic theories, approaches, methods, whatever, kind of made, how we made sense of or evaluated her positioning or her methodology or her kind of rhetorical strategies that she's engaged in. Perhaps to set that up a little bit, uh, we might kind of highlight a couple quick passages from the introduction from the first chapter. And so she says that on page 10, throughout this book, I examine scientists' methods in conducting brain organization research in a way that can be seen as a hybrid between the kind of critique that is the model for scientific peer review and the kind of critique that is more common in science and technology studies. Later on, on page 11, she writes, while I did not physically observe scientists in their work, I did interview them. And some of these interviews turned into ongoing collegial conversations. Still, I did these interviews as another scientist, a sort of critical insider, rather than taking a more anthropological approach. And then finally, on page 12, she writes, I'm, I'm trained as a scientist and I value scientific method. I believe it is worth holding scientific research, especially high-profile research, on a topic that is of great social and political importance to the highest standards. So, all of you, how did you kind of make sense of her positioning herself as a kind of quasi-insider or quasi-scientist and then the implications of that positioning for the work that she does in the book? Yeah, so for me as a scientist, um, I... I had never heard of the field science and technology studies and kind of there it, it seemed like the framing for her was to set it up to say that she is closer to science and has this science training but the the idea that you would need to set that up kind of gives a, a signal that she's not fully immersed in in science or working as a scientist she to me I read it as there was a clear sense that she kind of straddles fields and is interested in meta critiques around science in addition to the details of the science itself. 
Yeah, it's interesting for me because from my training, my side comes out of anthropological theory and social theory and um, looking at the kind of ethnographic side of it and critical theory, of course. And so she kind of disaffiliated herself from STS studies, which would be like the closest, uh, you know, camp or something that I would affiliate with and kind of reading her as like one of our one of us or reading someone else. And I. I actually was joking with John yesterday and I told him that I felt like I had wandered to a different high school clique's lunch table reading this book because I was like, she's not one of us. And she, you know, I, you know, she positioned herself in my reading like she was not in the critical theory side of things or the kind of anthropological theory or ethnographic practices. And so it's interesting that you all kind of had that similar, uh, you know, reception. Is she where has she positioned herself like where where is she then and what this book is kind of in a field of its own yeah i think the book is a unique thing in that it includes a lot of detail of scientific study and uh, an investigation of different methods that are used in science in like a kind of uh, fine-grained way but yet there's still this at least to me as I read it, kind of an overall sense that this wasn't exactly science. There was some either different motive or different positioning of things that made it seem like this wasn't just about science, but yeah. something bigger. I mean, so sort of, for example, like the term uh, brain organization science that she that she uses. Uh, we this... might need to, I'm sorry, but we might yeah. need to back up a bit to just say exactly what it is. Sure. Subfield of science that she is framing and writing about yeah so the, uh, yeah i was going to try to do this but probably not as comprehensively as as we should uh so i mean basically the book focuses on the study of sexual development uh implicating hormones uh in sexual dimorphism and sort of later in life gender related traits and dimorphism um and so sort of under this Within science, this is sort of a, a like a heterogeneous field that's maybe emerged over the last, at least predominantly, like since the 1950s or so, um, in terms of the, the body of, of literature that she's heavily relying on. Um, and she does something uh, that, she, so there are certain like kind of things that get triggered as, as you read this, like looking at it as a scientist that make it feel kind of not like a scientist. The fact that she tries to sort of taxonomize a certain kind of science that's thematically interest that, that's thematically connected that she's interested in, in analyzing but not using terms that those scientists themselves have employed is something somewhat non-standard for, me, uh, for scientific review read the passage where she uh, introduces the term that she uses which is brain organization research so um, she's referring to kind of a general theory about gender development that she came across in the scientific literature. And she says, according to this theory, prenatal hormone exposures cause sexual differentiation of the brain. That is, early hormones create permanent masculine or feminine patterns of desire, personality, temperament, and cognition. Further hormones later in life could activate behavioral predispositions, but the predispositions themselves result from the initial organizing effect of hormones very early in development before birth. Uh, intrigued, I began to look for other research related to this theory, which some scientists call the organization activation hypothesis, and some call the neurohormonal theory. I was particularly interested in studies that explore the earlier organizing role of hormones, the time when hormones presumably cause sex type 
sex type predispositions. I think the clearest way to refer to that work is by the term brain organization research. So that is the term I use in this book. But it's not the term, like she acknowledges that that's not a, a term that's used by scientists. What page is that on? That's in the preface uh, on page six of the preface. Sorry, page 11. <laughs> I'm bad at Roman numerals. <laughs> uh, sorry, I didn't mean to laugh so much at that. Uh, we're, we're all bad at Roman numerals, probably. Um, I think that's an interesting point that you raised that, um, or so, sort of highlighting that that term is not one that is sort of out there, that it, it was a, a term that she used to sort of bring a bunch of stuff together and claim that it was, um, that it, there were some shared stakes to looking at this as a whole set of research. Because one of the things that I was thinking of in response to the question John raised about, you know, how do I make sense of the way this book is positioned vis-a-vis my own, you know, academic inclinations. Um, I think one of the questions that arises for me regarding that is what the audience is, which is something that I wasn't sure was so clear because I think what I think what she's trying to do is to, to say that the social study of science is not the same kind of study of science as what we might think of as a scientific way to study science. So I got the sense that she was trying to come up with a scientific way to study science, but to position the stakes of that in the realm of science and technology studies. So she frames the project as like ultimately trying to discover to what extent gender is related to the body, which has been a question that has been, you know, of central concern to feminist thinkers and philosophers for, you know, a hundred years, right? And I think that there's that that kind of tension maybe between like the, a sci- uh, something we might think of as a scientific study of science versus like a social study of science might be kind of where the positioning, um, you know, some of where that sort of outsiderness feeling generates. So where, where do you think she falls in that? I'm not, not sure. I think okay. I think she's trying to do both. I think she wants to say there's a scientific way to study science, but that the there are stakes for doing that that are important for like social theory and philosophy. Maybe. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I had a kind of similar reaction, I would say. And I think that the it probably points to some it probably points to some fairly important things about the, you know, tensions around this issue somehow. Um and I think but but I think that those I think she's doing some kind of social exercise in a way where she's attempting to Maybe she's attempting, I don't know what, I'm, I'm speculating, but maybe she's attempting to please multiple people. Maybe she's attempting to be seen as legitimate from multiple points of view. She's in some way trying to, maybe she's trying to differentiate herself um, along lines that are driven by kind of perception, perceived flaws in different approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's certainly the stereotype that, you know, scientists will kind of be, it's a stereotype that scientists will, I'm not sure that I agree with it will be dismissive of social studies of their own practice or something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so presumably she wants to be kind of on the inside there and to kind of use the correct methodology from that point of view so that she'll be heard or something. Um, and that seems reasonable to me. I think there, it, it can be kind of easy to dismiss, um, to dismiss attempts to critique science from the outside. I'm sympathetic to the idea that that's a problem. Um, and I'm sympathetic to the idea that there should be critique of science. At the same time, I'm also sympathetic to the kind of view that a lot of the critique is not that good or something, which is, in a, in a sense, these are the kinds of thoughts that are actually you mean in, in the my book mind. or like in general. I mean, in general, sorry, yeah, because yeah. I'm in the world. 
I mean, these kinds of things, um, maybe I'm very, I, I don't know, I'd be interested to know if people think that my attitude to this is not kind of coherent or something, but these are the kind of concerns that, in a way, like, would want, make me want to, like, do a podcast episode like this, for right. example. Um, it, it doesn't seem, it seems, the, the divisions kind of seem not that important in a deep theoretical way, but maybe in some social way they are or something. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, can I just respond to that really quickly? I think that there's a kind of interesting way that as somebody who comes from STS vaguely um, and sort of philosophy of science background is that I think one of the like key reasons why people want to do a social study of science is something that scientists would actually, I think it's a an implicit thing that scientists would already agree with that it just like people who are not scientists feel the need to elaborate this because of the thing I was mentioning earlier that there's like a gap between the actual dynamic and very diverse processes of scientific research itself and then the way science gets deployed and sort of talked about, um, you know, in politics and in just the world in general. And what science and technology studies, I think, tries to do is to say that, like, right, we have, like, rampant critiques of politics and the political institutions and figures that anyone can make, you know, on Twitter or on Reddit. And that's like, <laughs> maybe not so good for democracy, maybe good for democracy. Like we have not figured it out yet what that critique has allowed or uh, precluded, but like that the main thrust of science and technology studies is to point out that science is dynamic and diverse and it has, you know, it, it interacts with the people's lives who are practicing it and the, um, you know, particular context of the things that are being observed and that like which I think most scientists would say like duh you know but we have the the way that we talk about science as a thing that is different than what it actually looks like I don't know if that's helpful but yeah I mean I was excited at the the prospect of reading this book and having it actually be kind of a new take on science um, just to to hear those kinds of thoughts, not even about this particular topic of gender and biology and that kind of thing, but just a general, you know, something to read on, on that. I just in this particular book, I don't think that's what it turned out to be. It seemed to be more about like a lot of the criticisms that she makes are totally in line with what scientists would say to other scientists about their work. So yeah, so speaking just for a moment more on the methodology, right? I mean, it feels like she is trying to engage with the scientific literature and rather than sort of try to analyze the social implications of the work per se, she's focusing on why the scientific work itself is not necessarily totally coherent or, or, or why there are uh, flaws in a lot of the scientific research. So it, it does feel from that perspective the, though sort of like the framing of the book feels to me like something that would I would expect more from STS or something, the 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 sort of the, the the detailed investigation of the science seems to be trying to like pick at the science in a sort of science critical kind of way, like like internal to science kind of way, and, and I guess that's why maybe it's appropriate that she terms herself as an insider of sorts because it does feel like a sort of uh, a more nuanced criticism uh, of the actual detailed science, not. Not that STS critiques aren't nuanced, but that this, this, this science, she's sort of criticizing as science, not necessarily for the ways that it plays into society. Which is probably right. in part think... kind of a rhetorical move, right? Because she, she probably assumes that folks like Emily and James and I are more or less on her side, so to speak. And she, I, my assumption would be she probably expects 
a more difficult or more challenging or harsher read from, from scientists. scientists, right? And those who would understand themselves as scientists, right? So I have another there, which is like how then effective that uh, that attempt by her um, is. So that I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> um, and then also, like, do we think what do we think she is trying to say back to feminist theorists or to STS people or to like if we set up a line between like the critical theory side and the science side you know we've talked more about going from the what is she trying to say to scientists but I think there's also a little bit of what is she trying to say to those other groups of people about science and about perhaps their own misunderstandings or misperceptions of science right because I don't think yeah. she just wants us to like us like me to uncritically be like yeah you, we need these feminists to go study science but I think he also wants to say something back to me as well right I have okay. a question yeah. yeah I have a question for the scientist about another <laughs> like heuristic that she made up um, so she on page 19 she she's talking about she looked the studies that she's looking at she calls it the quasi-experimental network but that this network, her definition of a network in this case is not one where like, you know, scientists that are actually in talks with each other or maybe like went to the same university to get their training or whatnot and are coming out with the same kind of models. This is a different kind of network and her, she's bridging a network of scientists who may not even be in discourse with each other, but that she says they're all working on the same theory. And so because they all share the same theory, they're differentiated and diverse researches are still all needing to kind of like check themselves against the theory that they're all working on, which gives her the kind of organizational premise to make them a network. Do you think, is that, is that a valid way to, to do the kind of critical work she's doing? Cause I guess like what you're saying that she's trying to do this, a critique of science from within science. In well, the, it's this, yes. Pseudo within, right? I mean, like she's, she's, yeah, I don't know. The style kind of vaguely resembles science, but there are ways that it doesn't resemble the critiques within science. And I think you've you've pointed on on like one of one of the ways that it feels kind of not the same way that scientists tend like run of the mill to to critique their own science, right? Most scientists are criticized by people uh, who publish in similar venues, attend similar conferences, uh, or or sort of self-identify as working on similar research directions and at least that's my read of the situation and uh she's 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 kind of doing something slightly non-standard in trying to both retrospectively and kind of even given the contemporary landscape piece together a, a, a set of researchers that might not see themselves as doing something similar but that she sees as doing something similar which I, I, it seems like something legitimate to do, but does feel maybe a bit different from the way like run-of-the-mill science actually operates. I mean, yeah, I agree that that's true. And I think, but to answer James's question, um, I feel like I would want, so if your question is kind of, is it a, what did, what, how did you phrase it exactly? What yeah, I guess like, is, is all of these, right, well, is this heuristic valid in that, is her kind of premise that because all these different research agendas are operating under the same theory or, or working to prove the same theory, that that gives her a way to kind of measure them against each other. And like, she's doing a translation work of terms, but like, is there something that, 
is that true that like all theory, like all researchers that come out of the same theory need to kind of have a coherence or something? Well, maybe I, I would say like I don't I don't know what's valid or not really, but my <laughs> intuition about this um, would be that I like it kind of um, from the point of view, you know, like who is it? Um, Quine or something has mm -hmm. this thing about um, regimented theory, you know, um, this kind of process of of going back over. Of, of philosophers say, going back over science, this is my understanding of this idea, going back over science in a way that is kind of even finer than scientists need to do themselves during their scientific practice. So there's a question of like, what do scientists do? What do they even need to do in order to do decent science? And then there's a question of, can we kind of take, how does, how does the science, that gets produced in this kind of turbulent way in an, a turbulent and ongoing way get turned into cleaner knowledge or something or, or kind of more useful knowledge or more coherent knowledge. So, so looking at it from that kind of point of view, I think at an abstract level, I very much like the idea of people going in and trying to state that certain kind of you know, domains of research are related and should bear on each other. And you could even imagine then that, you know, if there was a good kind of feedback cycle, you could even imagine that work like that would then influence people in the different domains that have been connected, say. Yeah, and actually, round, just, to, and just to interject, I mean, pragmatically, it actually feels like, and I think this is kind of sad, but it's, it's almost funding agencies that do this work practically in the contemporary science world. Like, funding agencies? Yeah. yeah. Like they, they come up with programs where they say, hey, we think that this is a direction science should move. And people from essentially non-communicating subfields of science might re realign what they uh, view as their field based yes. on who, who, who the changing dynamics of who funds who. I so, strongly agree with that, yeah. Yeah. Which is, Actually, can I just make, sorry. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, just, I, I, so again, in a sort of aspirational way, right, like the way I, I think this should work actually would be that, and maybe I'm getting off topic here, but would be that, like, <laughs> The feedback um, doesn't have to be just within scientists. First of all, I think there should be more feedback from science itself, like a kind of high-level, you know, scientists-driven process of looking at and doing this kind of linking up. But I think it would be really cool if, for example, there were like there was some mechanism built into the structure of science, whereby, you know, scientists and maybe other people who have more diverse views, like say uh, this, like the author of the book, right? or whoever can kind of participate in these type of feedback cycles and say, oh, well, what, where are we trying to go? Like, what do we know so far? And it would be like not necessarily that like, you know, divisive and certainly not driven by, you know, kind of this top-down funding agency thing. I don't know. This, I think, is an important part of how science work, kind of works. And it somehow doesn't seem very, currently very kind of coherent or like it's been thought about much explicitly how to, like, manage that process. There are a maybe, lot of, maybe I have too much of a Soviet attitude to it or something. I, don't know. <laughs> I will just say, I'll just note that there are a lot of proposals that come out of the feminist and post-colonial study of science that argue for exactly what you've just um, 
what you've just suggested that like there's a way you could do science in a more sort of or with a more diverse setting that it, it builds in mechanisms of self-reflection that would be that could in, in many cases like overcome some of the um you know things we might think of as a problem of translation like back into society or back into how do, how do you frame it um like neat or coherent knowledges or something like that but I, that's just a flag <laughs> You know, I think it's just maybe we're beating a dead horse a bit here, but to her point of why she kind of eschewed the methods of ethnography in doing this, that focuses on what scientists do in the field and like, you know, and kind of almost treating the field as this kind of exotic place. And, you you know, you go in that way and catalog it and all, but only like, but that doesn't actually get to if the science is being done well, according to the theoretical premises of the science, that you need someone who actually knows scientific theory. Right do that work from the inside and i and so i i mean i guess if that is a need then like she is emerging to to bridge this gap <laughs> I mean, I how well did she do it that's yeah. then the next question there are some things in science that exist for this 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 similar purpose i mean people write review articles that are meant to summarize the state of a certain field so there are review review articles that are written on the topics that she covers uh in this book uh so that's why it was a little confusing to me as to how to to think of her and her place and her mission because in some ways it seemed like a very long drawn out review article but it also seemed like it had kind of an agenda in a certain way and it was just unclear to me what that was so i guess in in terms of it being a review article i would say it wasn't a very good one um but then to evaluate it by some other measure i i don't know yeah. I think I, it was a good review article of one very specific, this is getting too far ahead now, but one very specific sort of field and it was kind of pitched as a review of something more general, which is the question that Emily, you sort of suggested was really the interesting question, right? That the age old question kind of, maybe not age old, but old, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, the link between the body and gender, say. Um, and I think she pitched bluntly. I think she kind of pitched it as attempting to answer that question. And then I think she sort of answer, sort of reviewed literature that bore on a more specific. It was a very comprehensive and detailed review of a subset of hormonal, uh, you know, hormonal developmental kind of science. Yeah, but I maybe guess we, the... maybe we should step yeah. So so maybe maybe we should actually talk a bit about some of the content of of the book and things that we thought were, or whatever people want to do. Yeah. Oh, I mean, you know, I think we should just like keep going on this like meta train about what is science. But that is <laughs> my meta, general meta like uh, that's my uh, Wait, one actually of did, my ticks and peculiarities. So. I actually did have one question relating to what we were just talking about in response to uh, the question John raised earlier about what we think she's trying to say back to people who are sort of on the critical theory side. Like, do we think that she that she's trying to give us an answer about the relationship between gender and the body that like feminists would not be happy with or like yeah. how, where do we think she lands on that question <laughs> vis-a-vis okay, like so I, I, our critical theory people? <laughs> I mean, I did think, I did think a lot about this in, in one sense, which is, is not going to answer your question directly, but hopefully it says something that pertains to it, which is there's, I got the feeling in this that like when I was reading it, that there was a view that was like politically fashionable or not, and that the science being true or not pertained to that, like the acceptability of the sort of political implications of what would happen. And I wasn't sure how to parse that. 
Like somehow I was reading it and like, well, if the scientists are right, does that mean it's like bad for feminism? Or if the scientists are wrong, I, it wasn't clear for me if, if there was some sort of tone to this. My, my temperament would be like, we should just let the science speak for itself. And we should have values that if they're in conflict with some scientific finding, we still, you know, we, we still can promote uh, sort of a political agenda that's, that's value driven in society. But there was, there was something about this book that kind of was, I felt as reading it that like, I, I had to be on, on guard almost as to whether or not there was a conflict between some truth in science. Uh, and what would be the politically ideal state? Like, what would be best to be true? It would be nice if true. something were true, because that might be politically convenient. But like, I don't know if, if the scientists. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear you guys on this. It's interesting because I kind of, and we, we didn't read the entire, we read the preface chapter one and chapters eight through 10. So we did skip like the middle, but I was, <laughs> I almost felt like, <laughs> I almost felt like the urgency of the political and social issues that she's like commenting on, but not, I didn't feel like she was actually writing for those urgencies in a way that like a critical theorist would center the political problem that these kinds of different realms of scientific discourse and practice or, or interpretation or something and how it shows up in like policy and whatnot. And she seemed to like, she because she positions that like the political stakes are high here, but I, then she doesn't really, I feel like address them to, from my person, you know, for what would count as addressing the political stakes. But I, I didn't, I didn't get it. But I, I do think the there's a, a lot of like offhanded moments where she does, yeah. right? Like on page 267, wait, let me find it. Um, she writes, the, my problem with the sex in the brain theory is that it underplays and mislocates the creative sources of human difference. I mean, that's like a political, that's a political claim to me in a way. <laughs> no, yeah, know. that's definitely a political claim. Yeah, I'm thinking more, I guess, like policy, but that's definitely oh, a political yeah. claim. Well, I mean, she does say at several different points, uh, more especially near the end that like, you know, well, that's ultimately a political and moral question that has to like be figured out later. She does say that at a couple different points, even as she is doing what Emily just pointed out of highlighting these kind of points that I think many of us would call political throughout, whether it's the point that Emily highlighted, whether it's the, you know, what she accuses um, some of the uh, scientists that study CAH uh, for not paying attention to the kind of psychological effects of these uh, interventions and surgeries and treatments themselves. And so I think there are several places where she's trying to make smaller political interventions, but she wants to defer the larger political questions that the book raises. That's kind of how I read it. Right. I I guess I agree with that. Maybe this is being a little picky, but there, you mentioned where she said moral and political questions. And I, the word moral actually stood out to me as kind of odd that she chose moral instead of ethical. Cause I just feel like, Oh, interesting. Political ethics is like the parlance, you know, and, and to call it a moral question just felt very like a, like I hear moral theory in like analytical philosophy or some, you know, some kind of, mm-hmm. it didn't seem like it was coming out of a, I, I don't know who uses the word moral within critical theory. I hear ethics all the time. Okay, so, so, so I don't know if that's a big difference or not, but it's, no, but it, it is it, it, interesting to note that you, she uses a different word. So you, you <laughs> so say this signal to us. Right? Exactly. No, this us. is a signal. There, there are signals on both, like in both respects, like 
for scientists reading this book, there are those kinds of subtle indicators that like, yeah, this isn't quite a scientist uh, critiquing the science. There are there are too many maybe political injections, not too many. I mean, I'm, I'm using too many in the in the in the sort of statistical sense. Like normally when I read science stuff, it doesn't have that many. Um, not in like a you know imperative sense, but th there are like too many uh, political political messaging, and there's you know too too much redefinition of of the field of analysis that like the the, the field of study that she's 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 covering. Um, so it, it, it it's interesting that I sort of you 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 saw subtle things that said like yeah this isn't someone from my sort of intellectual background. Uh, writing this right right and i guess like i definitely agree that she has those little moments of intervention but like if your intervention like you know i guess it's just what are you sensing she doesn't want to center the intervention per se on the political ethical slash moral question she wants to center the intervention on the scientific theoretical practice and like lining up your theories and checking them but what yeah, one just... might read is a kind of another sort of rhetorical strategy, right? Like if it's already, you know, to use Josh's word, like too much in some way for science to have the small interventions where she does, then it would perhaps lose her audience credibility or something if there was more, if that was more overt, no? I right. agree with that. I yeah. mean, I'm definitely going to, this is a difficult task if you're trying to write to this like Venn diagram middle overlap audience of scientists and critical theory people and STS people but so I mean I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and say that what she did was easy but I wonder in some way that you know when you run to the middle do you lose your base right <laughs> in either way does does she have a base of people who are with her the whole time through? I hope that doesn't happen for this podcast episode <laughs> oh. <laughs> stay with us all the we'll be back by ourselves next time <laughs> back in our comfortable bubbles um, I, I don't know, to me it, it felt like a yeah, rhetorical strategy, I, I felt like the, basically the program was going to be something along the lines of, you know, I trust science when I figure out how all this science works actually and reveal what claims about socially or politically important matters it does or does not support, then it will be kind of self-evident which of those claims that want to be based on science, right? So, you know, I say, oh, the difference in you know gender differences in occupations are supported by science. She wants to kind of reveal the truth of the science. What does the science really um, support? And then it'll be kind of like clear which of those claims are you know debunked or not. That was kind of that kind of seemed like her attempted. With her attempt being to essentially, and I, I, I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to indicate that I'm against this, but with her attempt being to sort of debunk all of the gender-based claims about contemporary society, which is probably quite warranted based on an analysis of literature. Um, I'm not sure if she was trying to debunk all of the gender-based claims. I mean... She was pretty she, strong, she actually. Right? She, so she like, does repeatedly sort of say, like, I, there definitely are differences between whatever. I mean, well, no, I mean, Points, well, kind of. Yeah, where do they come from, though? Do they come from hormones? And her claim is essentially that hormones, I mean, I, I don't want to over-summarize it, but like, to me, a takeaway from the book was that like, hormones aren't responsible for any of the differences. No, no, I no, think no. the claim was that the evidence doesn't, that the evidence is confusing and it's not clear that it does. Not just that it doesn't full stop, but that it's not clear that it does based on 
this these sets of studies or that's data. Fair. Yeah, that's, but that's, that's but also it wasn't even it was it was so in my mind kind of strangely specific. It was prenatal hormone exposure relating to lifelong permanent differences. So between. yeah, this, this emphasis on critical periods early in life where the hormone exposure during that time period is not responsible for lifelong differences. Because she's not, there, there are uh, studies that she talks about or situations that she talks about where hormones will be manipulated later in life and she doesn't really bring up those aspects of it or the, the, peop the people who think that those are the hormones that matter and that kind of thing. So it is a very specific theory that she is trying to kind of make people not grasp so tightly. Just say, like, this is this is not as certain as maybe some people think it is. I don't even know how certain everyone thought it was, but she's kind of putting forth the idea that people thought prenatal pre hormone exposure led to gender differences. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. That to me seems like... It, to me, it's kind of it was incredible to me to realize that that really was the literature that she was reviewing because I was like, oh my god, this is going to be great. I'm going to read this book and get a really thorough overview from someone who is like socially and politically thoughtful of a scientific literature that bears on a kind of topic that is of social and political importance currently. And I was excited about that. And then I was like, wait, she's just telling me that the literature on whether or not hormone exposures prenatally has effects on like high level cognitive, psychological, social kind of behavioral outcomes later in life is unclear. I was and actually, it's, no, more it's shocked to me that, that anybody would claim that that's clear. Yeah, so if that's true, that scientists are going around, if there are scientists going around being like, oh, it's clear that, you know, whatever like high level differences later in life are due to these difference in hormone exposures to me that just seems very unlikely a priori to be clear right now even if there is some tiny or some small effects that we could just because it's such a hard question i don't know yeah and most of it was it, her focus was in humans so she didn't even really go into the major like the majority of the work done on this kind of topic is done in animals because it's a much more controlled setting so this was does this happen in humans which is just an incredibly specific thing that yeah like no one should claim with any certainty i but i think the problem again is not that like scientists all claim that with you know relative 90% certainty but that you know the anecdote at the beginning that like parents well you know a boy pushes a girl on the playground and they say boys will be boys and there's scientific evidence that proves that hormones matter and like we don't think you know a lay person doesn't think beyond that and then you don't need to think critically about how you subtly raise your boy child and your girl child differently because you think that like the hormones are doing the bulk of the work anyway and then I don't know I, th I think I think that's part of maybe part of the reason why we're still trying to figure out like where is this book being pitched because there are ways that 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 claim that clear link between hormonal development and gender performance like seems in some offhanded ways to be like settled and obvious you know well and so maybe and, well. and maybe this is kind of a source of the dissatisfaction that uh connor was expressing and that maybe in this and also another way to get at the what is the political intervention question is that another level on which this book is operating is not just to uh, take this, what you all have, you know, clearly articulated is this very kind of small, perhaps slightly absurd claim and pick that claim apart, 
But she's also then interested in, as Emily points out, how do popular understandings, bad or not, of the science that gets done impact uh, expectations, attitudes, behaviors, norms about gender, right? So there's kind of the perhaps where she understands herself, or I don't want to say understands herself, where and from my perspective, the book is less concerned in that aspect or that dimension about the engagement with science, but about what happens when science, to use James's term, translates back into kind of popular discourses about gender, which is a really, really, really difficult task to do all of those things and speak to the science yes. in a way that is going to be especially satisfying. Yeah. I actually kind of see it slightly different. I don't know. Um, Cause I feel like, how dare you disagree? I maybe, I <laughs> but yeah. I thought we were going to like do a united front against the science. <laughs> part of the problem, okay, John, so part of the just problem. Kidding, just kidding. <laughs> exactly. So no. Okay. I was thinking, when I was reading this, and like maybe this is a way to bridge into giving some specific examples from the text, um, so that way the listeners know exactly what she's doing. But um, I, like the like, so that example on like the playground that you brought up, Emily, or like those kinds of examples that she kind of peppers throughout um, the beginning of how our notions of like dimorphic sexuality, sex, and and differentiated behaviors that line up towards masculine and feminine and whatnot, that that in and of itself is kind of the, the meta structure by which we are then do, like scientists are then performing their research. And so like she was questioning the pre-hormonal therapy, not because it was like, there was this already implied assumption that there is a masculine and a feminine or something that like need, you know, so like, you're being, it's the positivism, I guess, of not realizing that what appears as masculine and feminine and in a, in a duality, maybe it's not a duality in the first place. And right. so then looking for hormones, through. right? Like having hormones already being like associated as sexualizing yeah. or something, right? Like you're, why are you even thinking that they do that? It's because you have this dimorphic model already in place that then causes you to look at things as like, what are they doing towards masculinity or towards femininity? Right. I think another question that she brings up that kind of is like, she is definitely interested in the cultural social spaces of this, but how it bounces back into science is when she was going through the studies of sex type behaviors and then dealing with toys and the categories that scientists use for different toys that make some toys masculine and some toys feminine I think that is a point at which it's not so much like what people in the playground think toys belong, but like the scientists that are Themselves, saying these toys yeah. are also masculine. How are they coming to that being a masculine trait in a toy? That yeah, is kind of like social cultural construction that is like hidden behind the scenes because no scientist is born and lives in a vacuum, right? But they are also coming of age and being articulated and interpolated as <clears throat> sex and gendered subjects. And so you're always already being stuck in the middle of all this. Right, and which so like, it's know. like a tautology, right? Like I know this boy right. exhibits masculine characteristics because he plays a, with a toy that I as a man consider masculine. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right, this is the like, it's all very self-reflective, these categories. Which is like, and before in this pre-setup we were talking and that's what I was saying, like these kinds of like, this is like the almost the, 
I don't, I'm not trying to sound pedantic or like I'm looking down on science, but like coming from the critical theory side and, and understanding. Yes, you like, are a little bit. No, so, so, yeah. oh, here we go. But like the whole suite of semiotics from structuralism into post-structuralism and that post-structuralism is not a refutation of structuralism, but it is an elaboration of the more dynamic right. processes of structure. But we are still very much structured in post-structuralism that looking to the construction of a category of masculine and feminine is the very first premise that I would think of. Wait, so are you that, saying that we need a quantum theory of sex difference? <laughs> a bit? I'm not that quite was sure. A that, that was a joke. That was a bad yes. joke. <laughs> no, but I think like that's the only, maybe that's the only metaphor that is within science <laughs> that is incorporating the same dynamics of the structure that post-structuralism was trying to get at. Yes, can you, got, can you so. elaborate? One one point before this, though. I mean, again, we, we had talked about this before, that it shouldn't be a thing that, like, oh, scientists all believe this. There's one dude who decides to categorize some things for the purposes of an experiment as masculine or feminine. This is one person who's doing the science, this particular scientific experiment, right? And that specific person is, uh, is, is attempting to quantify something in a way that is acceptable as a scientific methodology. But where I'm sorry, where are there like manuals or like guides that scientists are using? I, I... Well, so the issue is that so she brings up this idea like in the beginning when she's setting things up that you need to be comparing the same thing across studies. And so sometimes scientists are good at that and sometimes they're less good, which is something that she kind of points out a lot, that their different studies are comparing different things. But in an effort to be consistent, people will use whatever measures the person that came before them used or the, the scientists. Yeah. And so given that it seems like I was kind of surprised by how, you know, standard, at least the ones she lists, I don't know what other options there are that different scientists are using, but she does say that a lot of these measures are kind of just they stem from stereotypes and they were made up. Quite I some once, time ago. I, at some, by some scientists many decades ago. Yeah, and so there's point. a pressure on scientists. Obviously, you want to use measures that make sense, but you also want your studies, yeah, to fit into the previous studies. So if you want to measure, like, how does gender change over time, you have to use the same study that they use in, or the same measure that they used in the 60s and compare it to something today. One example is the child behavior checklist, um, and she has a citation for it. There's another one is the perceived competence scale for children. <laughs> Um, and so this is what I'm saying. Whoever's making these up, here's another one. Recall childhood gender questionnaire. And so like, it seems, and I don't know, I don't so know I, the inside of science, right? Are those kinds of manuals just being used within different studies as like the definition for no, so, I mean, feminine? I have no idea. And it carries across multiple studies in a way that no one is double checking the construction of those very categories once it's already in literature. I don't think that there's a question of no one double checking them. It's It's a question of, each scientist, in a very decentralized way, chooses which definitions and manuals to rely on, or, or none. Mm -hmm. And so to say that like this is like a thing that scientists now believe is, I think, very not consistent with the way that scientists view it. Mm -hmm. There might be a subfield. So like, and it could even be geographically or sort of ideologically or culturally isolated, where you have a whole bunch of people at a certain kind of place. I mean, there, there are people who deny you know, climate change based on only citing people from a small subset of universities where there's a few professors who all deny climate change. Yeah. So to, to say that... And like, all those people are going to be <laughs> representatives in our democracy. <laughs> Sorry. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> but so the, the, the view that, like, <laughs> these guys who make the manuals set the tone for science 
I think is just not realistic. There, there, there are huge fractures and people only cite the previous work that they think is informative or, or useful for, for them to build upon. So, yeah. yes. Ukraine science is monolithic. That is a problem. Like the decentralization of it is the problem if one of those manuals has just a completely ridiculous culturally <laughs> relative definition of masculine and then it gets like replicated in ten other studies. Well, so, is tracking, right? well what but would be the solution? Like, hold up. Hold up, hold up. She's trying to be the solution, I suppose, right? They're going through all of them and saying, look at these various man these ten manuals that all these other studies are drawing from. And all of those definitions seem to be not quite, you know, they're not yeah. objective, right? And I think that's what she's trying to do. Whether or not she's doing that well is a secondary question. But I do think in that she's concerned about the social cultural side that spills back into science. That's what I was trying like not so much that where right. SCS wants to see how these discourses roll out into other realms of discourse. She's looking to see how culture and social condition, you know, sociocultural relative local context are built into these into some of those studies like you know but but she's cherry picking or she's making her own network of course right because yeah. it is so decentral decentralized but i think part of that is the problem that she's trying to point at yeah. i think that's definitely like sorry grace go ahead well i was just going to say that uh i i agree that like this idea that these measures are just kind of out of the heads of people who lived in a certain time and had certain assumptions, like that itself is not scientific. That is not a scientific way to, to define something. You should go out and observe what actual differences are and categorize things that way, not just like assert what you think differences are. The issue I have is I, I, based on how she represented other things in this book, and because none of us are in this field directly, I don't know if she's accurately representing the measures that people use. I mean, it's, yeah, it does I sound... guess that's hard to measure. There was one study that she noted that was different in that the researchers actually observed children playing with the toys themselves and then used that as their kind of like the phenomenal grounding of whatever category they're trying to use. But yeah, I, I guess none of us are in this field and no one is in her field but her. <laughs> so it's very difficult to, to actually like be able to verify what she's saying. Can I make one small statement, which I think is just that, right, how you are viewing science and the results of science from different points of view is somehow like really important. So within science, say, like, again, it doesn't even, it's kind of ridiculous for me to say within science, because it's kind of like, in what sense am I within something that is related to physics? Like, it, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, like the, my field has, is as far away from theoretical physics as it is from, you know, going and painting houses like it's just maybe not quite that far but it's very kind of unrelated in some in certain ways anyway my point is like given this kind of fracturing if from the you know within say i'm i'm in the kind of domain of studying gender and the brain or something and there's like three fields that's three sub kind of clicks or something um it's never this clean right but say we're all kind of in our sub clicks citing each other or something and we're kind of coming to different types of conclusions and then I can look at the other clicks and be like, oh, you guys suck because like you're doing all this kind of stuff that I think is wrong. And then people on the outside can look and say, here are the things that science thinks about about this topic. How do how does it end up being that, you know, click number one has more influence or something? Yeah, that's such you know, an it interesting could be question. Yeah, like is click one just loud or is there some historical process that leads to that? So yeah, I mean, how do how do like, disagreements within science get ignored or 
suppressed or you if know I, I mean, exaggerated if I just, if I just add to this right I mean if there's like a bigoted clique of scientists right and there's like a liberal clique of scientists whose science just in both cases reinforces the biases that they hold right I mean then people can selectively cite uh, like Whoever people in policy yeah exactly so you have you have some liberal scientist in New York who decides that they're going to do a study that they believe when designing the study will show something that they think is politically convenient for them. And you have some, you know, very bigoted scientists somewhere else who designs a study that's like shows that there's like extraordinary from birth, you know, sex differentiation or something like this. And, you know, people like see the science that they think is relevant. And I like that your like uh, dichotomy is liberal or bigoted. Yeah, <laughs> yeah very and telling. From New York <laughs> and exposing a, a bias. <laughs> of its, own. Well, <laughs> it's, in, it's interesting to like, go back to Connor's question because it goes back to a comment you all made earlier in a side. Anyway, so it goes back to a comment made earlier about the funding structures and yeah. funding bodies and funding institutions, right? Because they are necessarily going to play an important role in selecting which of these three hypothetical cliques is going to have some kind of prominence or some kind of hegemony yeah, as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. For sure. I don't know. I haven't really tried to look at this. If the, the funding lines up with the narrative that occurs in popular science, I think there's a way for people to kind of make it a priority of theirs and there are some scientists who do this to kind of seek out media attention and so even if they're not actually getting a lot of praise from their so you could have like a bad scientist who does <laughs> a rogue this. scientist going off and telling newspapers things that most scientists wouldn't agree with so i wonder how it actually lines up i'm not sure yeah i mean i think the extreme version of that probably doesn't happen that much where it's like a real rogue although yeah maybe breitbart or something is like you know plucking out the nutcases but um I think, um, yeah, that's definitely a, a kind of a, a somewhat independent variable, which is like scientists' personal will to be heard and have social influence. So. I want to go back to something from uh, a long time ago. Um, we were talking about, yeah, uh, uh, this idea of like, you know, scientists are kind of assuming um, that uh, at least so, in some sense, like there are two, two, there are two genders, and we're going to compare males and females and that kind of thing, and perhaps looking at behavioral data that might not be so obvious because things do happen on a continuum. Like there's a lot of overlap in different skills and that kind of things between different, uh, between males and females and all of that. And so it might not like the idea that there's this assumption that there should be a dichotomy is it seems maybe false from the behavioral perspective. But I think the when you're studying the biological basis of gender, uh, there's obviously a dichotomy in in genetics because there's XX versus XY, and so I think also that it's at least not... three other chromosomal arrangements that are not XX or XY. This is yes, like but the, the, the vast classic, majority, the classic well, but, uh, also, Sterling. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah but, no, I'm just well, no, actually, this would be. I mean, this is worth arguing about because in the background of 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 this whole discussion is that I mean, I think we all come with different assumptions about what reasonable parts of this are. I mean, from a scientific from a scientific standpoint. I don't, I don't, I don't mean like that in a normative sense, but like there is the perspective that non-typical chromosomal arrangements lead to sterility. So they are somehow distinct and represent a disorder compared to typical arrangements of chromosomes. Right. See, but wouldn't that almost be a kind of background implicit heteronormativity 
bias that well, it's not heteronormative because it says nothing about orientation it? right it's an evolutionary well, okay, bias though right yeah it comes right because, it's an evolutionary bias yeah but, but biology is is much of the understanding of biology is based in evolution and so yes the, that's where so you get like, information will to live from. or something is embedded in like the you know they're saying like the need to reproduce across generations or something becomes the orientation for how we will like chart those various chromosomal arrangements and it's just at least it's so if it is the case that there are like most people fall into xx or xy um and they have reproductive uh kind of abilities related to them it just makes sense that there will be perhaps other biological differences that relate to xx versus xy and so that's a reasonable place to start your study from i think that's kind of the intuition behind it I think that makes sense. Um, I I did think, though, that one of the sort of political stakes that was not enumerated in this book was she several times kind of offhandedly refers to parts of like stories of evolutionary psychology as sort of like myths. You know, I think that one of her kind of unstated um, maybe another kind of straw man is that she thinks that the sort of <clears throat> stories that evolutionary psychology or biology tell us are maybe like overstated as well. Uh, but I I'm thought sorry, that was an interesting I, I, one that she lets kind of like fly under without uh, saying anything more about. This might be attached to that then actually, because I have a question about this evolutionary, because I, yeah, it was coming up a lot and I'm thinking out loud now. I've not thought about this reading it up until now, but I, is it Jose Munoz, the queer theorist who talks about like queerness as death yeah. and like well, non-reproduction? So I'm just curious, like if you were to no, that's that's back. Lee Edelman. Oh right. Okay, okay, Lee Edelman. So right, like that kind of, you know, the whole notion of evolutionary biology is reproduction, and like, what if that is not, you know, instead of normalizing reproduction, I'm not trying to decenter it or maybe like claim that it clearly it's a significant part of this, but that to kind of decenter it. And to say that all other all of these other biological expressions are, you know, legitimate. Or but something. I think the point that Grace was making is not that 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 I liked the way you just framed it as like because there is that one difference that we know about between XX and XY, we can assume that there may be others. So that's a place to start. I don't think that making that claim automatically ties you to the view that like production reproduction is the central feature of human existence you know what i mean like i guess like it's what just is, one measurable just, difference that we can see so why not track other things that we might be able to see or measure onto it i'm just the, thinking about this for the first um, time right now too difference is that like the meta difference that all of the differences are no so so i mean from? Just, or could you start the difference like start your whole line of questioning from a different difference right and see so, what you get so I think that's a, that's that's a valid point is to look at the 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 set of differences that you could compare and make distinctions upon. But I think and and I mean so I'll I'll try to push also towards something I mean that came up in this book, right? There's a notion and I, I will come back to this to this to at least in spirit I think what a core part of this is that there's this there's this notion of interactionism versus like additivity of hormones versus experience. Where, you know, you might have like the, the notion that like the claim was that fundamentally when scientists look at hormones versus environment, they're looking at just like a sort of linear combination of these two factors, whereas they could be looking at uh, like how uh, when when hormones drive some change in behavior, 
that change in behavior drives changes in hormones and, and how there's like actually a lot of complex dynamics going on here. And I think something that it, it, as a scientist people take for granted is like you have to latch on to whatever the, the sort of biggest first order differences are that you can see so that you can start making any progress, right? It's like, I think something that's hard for scientists is to, to, to like, to, to, I mean, basically you, you, you want to start somewhere and you have to pick very easy problems to start with. And it, because you want to quantify them and, and try to make very clear and quantified statements about them. And of course you're interested in building that theory up and, and moving to increasingly complicated and nuanced versions of it. That, that's, I mean, I think most scientists do feel that way actually, but the difficulty is in making initial steps that you can make progress on that will, that will, that are actually productive from the standpoint of ultimately leading to increased nuance. Um, and, and so for something like, uh, hormones versus, uh, versus environment or, you know, broad differences in people, you might look to, uh, the simplest differences you can see. Hormones do something kind of most of the time. Environment does something kind of most of the time. Or this gender does something kind of most of the time. This other gender does something kind of most of the time. And kind of in the long run, that is almost certainly going to be an impoverished view of reality. But maybe it gets you off the ground, at least gets a discussion rolling that otherwise wouldn't have gotten started. And, and maybe you could say like, oh, no, the discussion is totally foolish from the outset. But I think the way scientists tend to think about it is like you need to start somewhere this is somewhere where I can quantify something. Maybe let's proceed from there. Yeah. I will say, though, to to now, now I'm just like arguing everyone's view. To James' point, yeah. I think that <laughs> is that um, because sex difference has always been so core to a lot of like really restrictive and perverse like political projects that that particular question and that particular starting point is one that people are interested in in like maybe seeking an alternative to, I mean, <clears throat> have you guys ever read Emily Martin's The Sperm and the Egg? Nope. It's, no. it's a really yeah. awesome book. It's she does, amazing. she's an anthropologist and she does an anthropology of like biology textbooks where she tracks the language that they use to describe what the egg does and what the sperm does. And it's really funny because they describe women's like, periods and uteruses as like waste and like refuse and all of, and that like wh every time you have a period basically because the the thing that the egg is good for is production every time you have a period it's a failure of production so all so women's processes are considered as failures and then they use all this like amazing language to describe sperm it's like really funny it's a funny book but like are, are wet dream <clears throat> failures no, no, they're, they're <laughs> amazing weird. feats of production because they produce millions of potentials. So they're oh. like these like things to be held up and ad admired, you know, um, yeah, that's just like this, one sort this, of silly example. But I think that's the concern, there's a part in the right? book that talks about um, the first time sperm were looked at under a microscope and all of the kind of values that were attached to them as like adventurous. And right. Yeah. Like exploring. You know, like, <laughs> like, yeah. It's so weird. Like little, little colonists. <laughs> <laughs> it's all what's our, what's, our, what's our positive like proposal for how uh, we can, you know, have input into the scientific process around these things? 
Oh, I thought you wanted us to positively describe eggs to make yeah. up for. Oh, or we could do that. Yeah, <laughs> that's fun. <laughs> well, you can start by having all of the people in your grad programs listen to this episode. Nice. <laughs> this good, podcast. good marketing, James. I like uh -huh. it. That's a start, right? There. Is it marketing if it's within the episode? I don't know. <laughs> mm, that's, a good that's a great question. Yeah, that's very, yeah, that's true. That is, I think we have very, to get it's some, verification. some think tanks to fund us. And... thoughtful, smart person. You've made a good choice if you've gotten this far in the podcast. So. <laughs> this is like a little commercial break to like just keep it going. Connor, do you have an answer to your question? Um, it's kind of obvious what my answer is, isn't it? No, it's it's really, it's really blandly something like we all have to talk to each other more. And no, actually, yeah. I don't think that's that's not, that's not my answer. Um, do I have an answer? No. Yeah, I guess it's some. It's something that. I kind of, like, I'm interested in science communication, but I'm also, like, I'm a scientist and I do science, and in some ways I view them as just very separate things. It's like, there is science and there is truth, and the truth doesn't care about how it's talked about. Like, you just want to get at something that is accurate. Oh, the post-structuralist would disagree with that claim. Oh, I, of course. Yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> My um, heart started to bleed. <laughs> But then, yeah, but then how is it, how do people choose to represent it? Uh, that's usually those decisions are made so far removed from the, the areas where the science is done that it's it's hard to, to connect. I don't think they are. I mean, okay, so now I'm going to like etch away in a negative way to sort of, without giving my positive proposal, but like, <laughs> I, I don't think it's true that the, that the decisions are made very far away. I really want you... To guys to like disagree with me now and tell me why I'm wrong but like I don't think I think it, I, I do think it's wrong like that decisions are made very, very far away about how to like the bloody vervet monkey study yeah they literally gave the monkeys cars yeah okay. and we're like look wait so but I have a strong feeling about ridiculous. this which I've already I've already stated which is like okay science is not uh science is indifferent about what people are studying in some sense it is unscientific in some sense, but that's a, that's a that's a very particular usage of the word to say unscientific for them to say like oh it's masculine and feminine the cars are masculine and the whatever are feminine. I don't think I don't. Can you think, tell I don't us care what about the being, uh, monkey study is? Right. Yeah. Sorry. So she she cited this study at some point. I can try and find the page that it's on if you want. But um, basically, it's at, at the end of one of the chapters we read where they try to do some you know non-human uh, study to kind of claim that there are really low-level differences um, between sexually Genders, male so. and female, right, like monkeys, um, as to preferences, you know. Um, so they give them, they gave male and female monkeys like, toys to play with, like human-style toys to play with, like cars. It's just so ridiculous. Yeah, it, it's I ridiculous. Think, like, which I think she was saying that that study was, now maybe this is true or not, but was I was trying to show that the kind of Dimorphism was pre-evolution, you know, was pre-humanoid evolutionary yeah, exactly. already okay. there. But then so, you're giving human, you're giving human toys, yeah. yeah, to them. As so, yes. This is this is page two thirty four to two thirty six. But this is the thing, right? right. Those <laughs> toys were essentially masculinized and feminized in such a way that what essentially made them masculine and feminine were like color and like these right. perceptual things okay. or how it could be used. But so that, this is exactly this is this is exactly my point, which is that like there's some dude out there who thinks that, and so they do that study, 
And is it science? I, I don't really care about the definition of science as to whether we should call that unscientific or not. I, sure, I it's science. It's weird, shitty it's, science. It's, it's, just, a, yeah, it's, poorly, it's motivated just poorly motivated science. Fine. And for, for, for that to taint all of science is as ridiculous as if there was some really bad critical theorist who we could point to and make fun of because they said something stupid. And then we would say all of critical theory is bunk because there's some one dude in critical theory who said something, you know, stupid. Right. So these extremes are clear, and the question is, to what extent, I think, to what extent is there, to what extent, to what extent do things that are analogous to, the, to whoever it is that set up this study kind of being like, oh, blindly being like, when a monkey plays with a car, it signals that, you know, it's animals masculine. with penises, animals with penises like cars or something. <laughs> um, so it's I interesting mean, right? that... Another kind of a question on top of these that you all have laid out is, again, the translation back to popular science coverage, because if you, we go back and look at 234, the way that Jordan Young introduces the uh, vervet monkey study is this. When sex-typed interests are mentioned in popular science coverage, it is now de rigueur to include a study that seems to show sex-typed toy preferences in a non-human primate, the vervet monkey. Jerry and Alexander and Melissa Hines, 2002, devised a study of toy preferences in vervet monkeys as a response to criticisms of brain organization studies. Right? So the, Jordan Young is interested in this case in how potentially, again, this question we've talked about before, how bad science, quote unquote, seems to sometimes be the most popularly covered. Yeah, that detail that uh, she came to this because it's what's commonly said in popular science. I didn't notice that. But I mean, I, I do see how the the most kind of salacious things can become the most talked about. That's true in basically all domains. And it's unfortunate. But I think scientists need to have more, like, okay, so Josh, you're kind of saying the point, right, is that um, you do science and a lot of it is always going to be crap and all science, all reasonable a lot scientists of, a lot of know that. many fields is crap. Yeah, a lot of all, all fields are, are, are crappy, right? And there's always going to be these, and, and I think it's like definitely the case that there's going to be these weird, you know, strange biases. I mean, strange from some point of view, right? In the future, we'll look back and be like, what the hell? why were they doing that, right? Like, it's clearly because of all these uh, social factors, right? Um, and in some sense, you can't fix that problem. You can't get rid of it. It's impossible to, like, optimize it and totally cleanse any field of human kind of inquiry or intellectual yeah, practice. Yeah, this is my, this is my, this is my concern, yes. But I think all, like, we definitely don't take the position, no one could reasonably take the position that, you know, we we throw up our hands and ignore it, right? I mean, of course, right? No, so, I agree, yeah, yeah. Of course. So I think, like, scientists, and I, and I actually would go so far as to say that it is my experience that in science currently, there is an, a definitely a lack of um, some kind of vigorous internal reflection um, about, especially about those issues that are considered politically important, maybe. Um, although scientists are sensitive to all these kind of like, to all these kind of PC, like, oh, we have to be afraid of this, afraid of that thing. But it somehow just feels like and they don't really care. And it's and it's kind of reasonable that they don't care because the ways that they're criticized are not that interesting. There's some kind of missing, 
I, I, again, I think, again, I think you're overgeneralizing. To... It's hard for me to believe that scientists, more than other professionals, care or are more or less interested. I'm not saying they care more or less. I'm yeah. saying that it matters a lot if they care or not, maybe. I mean, it would be nice if lawyers and doctors and various professionals all cared about what they did with, with a level of sort of self-reflectiveness. And, and I think they should, right? I mean, that, that, I mean, of course, that's my perspective. But I, I don't think that scientists are, I, I don't think that they're more culpable than any field that has any sort of social or political relevance, which is like, I would say most like white collar jobs have some social or political re relevance. Um, and it's not clear to me that scientists are like, like, uh, scientists seem to, to think about their work as much as anyone else does, which is not adequate. I'm, so I agree I, with you. Yeah, I, I'm fine I, 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 criticizing it, but like the criticism should be kind of measured and like appropriate to the, the, the level of the crime, which is like they're normal people doing. I mean, I think, I think the complication though is perhaps we might say that because science has a certain amount of cachet or currency that if we can point to something and say science demonstrates this that makes it more likely to be generally accepted as true a that curious we might point. say there's more of an obligation on scientists than oh than, than right, lawyers to be careful about what they proclaim as <laughs> true uh, yeah I don't I think the authority of no, but... the epistemology and the method and like <laughs> where the discourse originates and power, right? This is, these are like Foucauldian insights, I suppose. Sure. But I, I agree mean, with I think that, really, Sorry. Because, because uh, there, so most jobs don't require that people have a lot of self-reflection or self-criticism, but the idea of science is that you have peer review and peer criticism, and so there is something built into science that is meant to make it more trustworthy, and so I can see why people would hear something that scientists say and not view it with the same skepticism that if like a lawyer said it. I agree with that. And another point, okay, is that many scientists, and this is interesting in thinking about the current, like, political structure of, say, the US, I think. Many scientists are also not listened to, right? Like, climate scientists are actively ignored, and it's attempt, it, there are attempts to, like, suppress in certain ways, you know, what they say. So it's very curious to me how, so science as this, like you said, Grace, this, and as Emily said, right, this kind of practice or, or like social formation that is supposedly espousing the importance of kind of extreme criticism and kind of care. The fact that that is supposedly the value of science means that it can can be used to back up various claims. No, I, so I think it's curious. It's like it's. I don't think it's as simple as like science can be used. Like science is used via the media to reinforce power structures or something, right? Because it's also ignored whenever it suits. Certain, when, when it suits certain interests. Totally. Uh, and then it's also, it's probably obviously a lot more complicated than that. It's not that there's some 10 powerful elites who are just being like, yes to this science, getting out, no to that science. No, it's obviously you know not what, quite. this is really interesting in light of the what happened with the Weather Channel and Breitbart recently, just in a kind of general to the side discourse of science. And then I was wondering, because I don't know, if, so if people don't know the situation, the Weather Channel had this video that they released that talked about global temperatures dropping at the poles, I believe, about a one degree Celsius or something. But that's like to be expected when you come off of a La Nina pattern <laughs> into an El Nino. And so, yes, 
it's like this little drop of temperature, but on the top of a huge and continuous like spike since the 70s in global temperatures. Well, Breitbart takes this little clip it, and because no one at Breitbart probably even has the like scientific knowledge and skill set to even know that they're taking this out of context. Like, I don't think they're willful about it. I think they just don't even know what they're doing. And they post this up and they're like, look, global temperatures are dropping. Here's this video from the Weather Channel saying so. And the Weather Channel actually issued a blog and the meteorologist who was in the video made another video, like prove, like going through the whole case and trying to set the context for this right. And it's just really interesting because like you're saying, it, science in some ways these days in this country, in the United States at least, right, is becoming in some ways the power structure it benefits to to have scientific authority in other ways now it doesn't but then in this post-truth era you even have just like completely misapplications of science now and so i don't even know what we're where we go can from I, here can i, can I request an emily mess. crandall consult on this I question knew you were gonna she do is that. the one of us <laughs> <laughs> who studies the social and political and epistemological questions about climate change denial. Oh, why? I have to go, after we hang up, I have to go, like, write so much of my dissertation. Don't tell anyone. I don't know why I said that on a recorded <laughs> cast. That's not a good idea. What do you want me to, what do you want me to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just respond to, to Connor or to Josh or to James or to Grace on these kind of questions about the about the, perhaps like the epistemological and political questions about the use and misuse and disuse of science. And can we just, uh, we are in post-truth now, right? I don't want to be all Hegelian with my time periods and stuff, but we're in post-truth. I, I don't know anything. It's so where I'm at. Post-truth. I'll never be in post-truth. <laughs> See, because that's it. This is the problem, right? Like you're in your ontology and other people are in theirs and like there's no way to translate anymore. Of yeah. using truth as a kind of guide that we're all looking for truth. I don't even know if that's the case. So, I mean, th this isn't, I mean, this is an interesting sort of, I think, it, it's, a, it's a direct, it, I mean, these kinds of conversations are, are form the backdrop of any conversation across disciplines where people come with, you know, widely disparate assumptions. And, and I think, uh, I mean, operationally, scientists believe that there is, that there are, like, I think in order to do science, it, it, it's, it's essentially pointless if you don't believe that there are things that are a, like actually what you will find if you do the science well. Or, I mean, if, if you are totally comfortable, I mean, the, the, the only alternatives in the science space are you are comfortable in a sort of intentional way of interpreting things using, let's say, kind of quantitative methods to any conclusion or you believe that there is like a right answer and people have called that right answer historically truth, right? I mean, like they're, they're, like if you think, hey, hormones have an effect on the body, right? And there is an effect on the body. It may be interactive with the environment, but there is an effect on the body. Then you have to, uh, you have to believe that there's like a right answer. But I think some and questions are pose bigger challenges than other questions. I mean, I think that that's a really specific question, but I, but I think one of the points of this book, to get back to <laughs> our original <clears throat> task here, is to... Very so, impressive, so, so she poses the question, right, as, like, to what extent gender is related to the body, but she's also trying to say that, like, 
part of the problem with the way that like these studies have been talked about in sort of popular media is that like the question the specific question that you're asking about the relationship between prenatal hormonal exposure and gendered interests later in life we how do we what criteria do we use to measure whether that question and the answer to that question can then give us a question an answer to the question of to what extent gender is related to the body right so there's like a kind of you know conceptual gaps i think and when things when we're looking at really complex you know uh socio and environmental phenomena like climate change the question is not like I think one of the questions should be, in addition to like, why is it that we pay attention to science sometimes and not others? Like, there's a very simple answer to that question, which is kind of like an easy answer, which is like, well, because people have no incentive, right? But like, I think that's an uninteresting answer. And we should ask questions like, okay, but when we're trying to study something that's extremely complicated and that involves like all these different areas of theorizing and measuring and observation like we have to also ask the meta question about like are we asking the right sub questions like are we asking the right smaller questions to break up into smaller uh ways that we have disciplinary mechanisms to sort of solve or to seek answers to right and i think that that like meta interrogation of the relationship between the small parts of the question we we're asking and the big problem we're trying to figure out is is like an underdeveloped like area of thinking and i think that's where that kind of like cross-disciplinary potential is really rich you know that we like should talk to people in different disciplines to be like how is the tiny question you're asking about this giant phenomena like relate to my tiny question you know what can i learn in answering my question and looking at how you've answered yours and vice versa i i don't know that's i really agree with that yeah yeah and i think I think different aspects of science have different awareness of the gap between their tiny question and the big question. Even within neuroscience, there are fields where they kind of will talk about some larger question, but then it kind of it's it's clear that there's a, an awareness that that is really far off from the study, whereas other parts of neuroscience just kind of roll over the fact that the tiny thing they're studying is only barely recognizable as the, the larger question. But I do think that the incentives, I mean, you said like, oh, well, like people, I mean, you, you said it's an uninteresting answer. Yeah. I do think that is a large part of the answer. Totally. Right? I mean, so like people are, if people are incentivized to believe something or not incentivized to believe something or incentivized to uh, strongly put something forth. So like by that, I mean, like, you know, if, if you do science, like, I mean, and I think this actually has affected science. There are scientists, like that is to say, professors at universities who do science who uh, who have, I think, twisted what they do in order for it to be more compelling to the media, yeah. right? I mean, like, if, if, if you do a certain study and you think, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm going to avoid saying any kinds of studies fall into this category specifically, but, like, if there are people who I believe do Don't name study, any names. Do, I'm not naming any names, right? but uh, do, do studies... If you want, you can chat us the name since we don't just matter what <laughs> random scientists think of us. So, yeah. like, that's enough. But these, so these, these people will do studies which essentially they believe the media will pick up on more likely. That, like, they're, they're, they're gearing it for, like, you know, personal clout, right? They think the New York Times is likely to write, you know, some piece on this or something. So they're more excited about it. And I think that kind of... Like, you of, and I, Josh, have joked about this, right? 
in what with sense? The, with one project that we were doing, remember? Oh, yeah. I, I remember we were like, oh, yeah, this is totally the kind of shit that the New York Times <laughs> But there's also, like... I shouldn't have revealed that. We can edit that part out. <laughs> you know, whatever. There's also, like, the specter of neoliberalism here, which if you've listened to our podcast, you know, is a popular ghost we like to hang out with. But, like, one of the problems is not just, like, okay, so one of the reasons why I say that the answer that it's not incentivized is uninteresting is because I also don't want to use the language of incentive incentivization because I don't want to say that like people will only do things when they're incentivized because now I'm a good neoliberal you know like yeah they've managed to make it that way though right but right that's one of the problems I think that like that's one of the problems that is like a a truth about you know lower t scare quotes truth or truth whatever you want to say a truth about our current world that like we have to figure out how to parse and that like uh, that's another another area where cross you know cross-disciplinary uh, conversation is like really necessary. So, but I mean, in an exchange of society, don't you believe that incentives play a large factor in motivating people to behave in certain ways, right? Yes, but I think that we should think about different ways to conceptualize why people do things and get like move away from the language of incentive incentivizing. But I mean, that's sort of a side conversation. But yes, I mean, I, I think obviously totally there are incentives. <laughs> we should change it so that it isn't just driven by like, I mean. Yeah, I think we have to change science ultimately at some point and everything else so that things aren't driven by these kinds of incentives. But that's a very like long term kind of project. Um, Wait, so yeah. can I just that, ask I you think to clarify? That changing science and changing everything might be a wonderful stopping point. I know. I was just going to say so is that your, that's your answer to our question of how do we positively <laughs> move away from these problems? Just change everything? Well, Burn it down. Yeah. <laughs> no, not burn it down. Just like rearrange it all. Rearrange. Completely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Maybe like take it apart good. carefully and then rebuild it. <laughs> that, that's <laughs> the heart of all the problems right there. Do we burn it down or do we slowly rearrange and and, and keep and preserve what, with the structure while we're trying to rearrange it? Do we yeah. destroy capitalism or do we... <laughs> Form capitalism, or do yeah, we? You're an always already <laughs> podcaster now. <laughs> you pose the question. <laughs> That's the only question, really. That is the only question. Welcome to the room that we've all been sitting in forever. <laughs> now that we've reached the end of questions. Oh, that was fun. Yeah, so fun. We made friends across the aisle. <laughs> yeah, Congratulations! Good. We should all have had ourselves on our backs now. <laughs> <laughs> Now we'll never talk to each other again, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because it's probably so true. <laughs> Should we have some sort of wrap up or? Thanks, Connor, for the initial idea to yeah, bring us you. all together. That's yeah. my wrap up. Yeah, thanks for doing it, guys. Awesome. It was fun. So yeah, fun. this was a cool conversation. Hey, if you're still listening to this, you must really like us. So how about you go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate the podcast, give us some feedback. You can also go to our website, unsupervisedthinkingpodcast.blogspot.com. You can comment on different episodes, or you could give us ideas for new topics you want to hear about. We would love to hear from you. Thanks.